trying to see if Danner and Lori are here. Danner, are you here? There you are. Okay. I wanted to just, would you all mind standing up, please? I want everybody to see who Danner and Lori are. They weren't expecting this. So listen, when you read the back of your bullet, and the reason I wanted to do that, because Danner and Lori are fairly new to our church family. And so when you read the back of the bulletin, you may be wondering, well, who are Danner and Lori? Well, now you know. That's Danner and Lori. And so the other thing I wanted, the other reason I wanted to do that is so that uh, when you read it, you'll see that I've encouraged you to encourage them. And so now you can put a face with the name and you can uh, take the opportunity to do that. So just wanted you to know who they were. Thanks for letting me embarrass you. <laughs> well, last week we get, began a four-part series investigating the, the distinctive characteristics of who we are as God's people. In case you weren't here with us last week, let me reemphasize, if I could, the fact that these characteristics are not and should not be unique to Melanie Park Church. And not only that, they're, they're not the only four characteristics of of who God's people should be. However, I do believe that these characteristics of worship, truth, of community, and of mission are important enough that they should exist in the life of every believer without exception or exclusion. As we talked about last week, it's like God's signature on his masterpiece. His church, that's us. When we see these qualities, it's like that appraiser, you remember, who's looking to see certain characteristics that always exist within the work of an original piece of art. Well, these characteristics are those attributes. And they tell people, they tell the world, they tell us that we are God's people. We began our series talking about worship, and we examined that dialogue that took place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. In this dialogue, Jesus taught us that we cannot worship that which we do not know. He goes on to explain that it's not about how we worship, it's about who we worship. And he goes on to describe that as that true worship is worship that is done in spirit and in truth. <laughs> we also learn, like any healthy relationship, the, the more we know the person we love, the more we grow to cherish and adore them. And so it is with our relationship with Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want us to consider that fact. I want us to to look together at what it means to grow in the knowledge of God in such a way that that it deepens our love and loyal devotion to Him. Because one thing I believe is important for us to understand, that, that this journey of growing in knowledge does not always lead us to a deeper faith in Christ. In fact, Scripture speaks of some false paths, if you will, that lead us in a different direction. We're going to look at a a couple of those this morning. The first path is the path that pursues knowledge in order to gain acceptance. It's what I call the path of the the Pharisee. It's the hope of of God's approval based on my performance. And, And that is a false path. 
There's another false path in Scripture that we'll look at. It's the, the pursuit of knowledge in order to gain control. This is what I call the path of the, the Sadducee. It's the hope of, of gaining God's favor because of privilege. We'll look at both of these this morning. And the reason is, is because I think it's easy for us to, to get derailed and find ourselves on one of these false paths. But the focus of our attention will be on what the Bible gives us as the one truth path where we find new life. It's what I call the way of the Savior. This is the path that, that leads to salvation through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Three different paths, but only one leads to salvation. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we open up your word, we trust, we believe that you uh, have made your way clear. And one of the ways that you've done that is that you have identified false paths, uh, imposters, if you will, things that, that so easily draw our attention away from the true path to the point that you want us to recognize those. But where we'll camp is where you uh, led us, and that is the true path, the way of the Savior. So as we walk down that way together this morning, I pray that we reaffirm, we recommit our desire to follow you in that path. Father, would you lead us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we walk that path with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let's start this morning by looking at the way of the Pharisee, uh, the pursuit of knowledge in order to gain acceptance. As we do that, I want to give you a little background about this Jewish sect that I believe will, will help us understand the temptation that those people had, and we still to, do today, to, to follow this well-worn path. In order to do this, what we're going to need to do is to, to put aside our evil uh, concept of this people that we've conjured up as we see the Pharisees are as those well-known group of hypocrites. Because if we were to go back in time to the point in which Jesus first encountered this familiar group, we would have seen them as some of the most respected citizens of our society. They were influential leaders who were deeply committed to the Scripture as well as its application to our everyday life. In fact, this is one of the distinguishing characteristics of this group. They were so committed to the application of Scripture that they gave the, the oral tradition of how it applies to our lives equal weight with what the Scripture says itself. You see, that oral law or that, that tradition was the list of, of things, the rules and observances that were designed to, to adapt the written law to a contemporary context to the point who, that anyone who lived according to those interpretations was assumed to be righteous. In so doing, they made the rule of life, that pattern of following God's precepts, into a way of salvation. In other words, how they lived made them worthy of God's acceptance. And the deeper this was ingrained, the more they looked at other people. And when 
their life didn't line up with the way they said it should be, the more judgmental they became of that group. Matthew's Gospel, we, we see Jesus encounter this group and, and confront this issue of the oral tradition. If you will, let's look at that together. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Let me uh, read this with you. And I want you to notice, I'll give you a little heads up as to the concern that this group had, the Pharisees had, when they talked to Jesus. Listen to this, chapter 15, verse 1. Then some of the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks of evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother, and thus... You invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You'll notice that the the focus of the Pharisees is not on Jesus' disciples' adherence to the law. It's to what? The tradition, right? That interpretation of the law and how it applies to our lives. Matthew makes that clear in this dialogue. See, the the ritual of washing the hands was in fact given by God specifically in the law for the priests when they carried out the ceremonial worship in the temple. The Pharisees took this God-ordained instruction for a specific people and they applied it to everyone, and said, this is what we must all do to be righteous in God's sight. And so when Jesus and his disciples were not following this tradition, the Pharisees, in essence, were questioning their righteous standing before God. The implication of their, their, their accusation was that in not following the tradition, they were breaking the law and therefore unrighteous. Jesus responds with something similar, but he changes the order around. You'll notice he says, instead of breaking the law by not following the tradition, he says, because you followed the tradition, you are the ones who are breaking the law and you are truly unrighteous. He goes on to explain what they've done. There was, in fact, a requirement in the law that says you need to take care of those who are in need, especially those who are in your own family. But what the Pharisees had done is they'd said, well, if there are things that I possess, that I dedicate to the Lord, then those are like reserved for me to do whatever I want to with, and I don't have to follow this other command because I've given those things to the Lord. And he said that's a selfish interpretation so that you can keep what you want while someone beside you 
remains in need. You've broken the law. Jesus wants them to understand that their heart is far from him. In fact, he says, doesn't he, that you praise me with your lips, but your heart is far away from me. You cannot worship that which you do not know. You are seeking a way of salvation through your list of rules, and righteousness can never be gained through performance. He then turns to the crowd and he gives them a parable in an effort to help drive this important truth home. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, and after he called the multitude to him, he he said to them, hear and understand. Not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This is what defiles the man. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended? When they heard this statement, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And Peter answered and said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still lacking in understanding? Do do you not understand that, that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders and adulterers, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that's not what defiles a man. See, Jesus takes an an everyday example and says, we all know this. (laughs) When we eat something... That substance passes in our mouth through our digestive system and, and then is eliminated out of our body. What we eat does not change who we are. Jesus says, but if you want to know who you are, then just listen to the words that come out of your mouth and the images that come out of your mind. He says, if those include evil thoughts for another person, Lustful coveting, jealous desires, angry words, bitterness, unforgiveness. He says that's what reveals the true condition of your heart. Your sin is what defiles you, not whether you wash your hands or not. In other words, good behavior cannot cleanse a bad heart. And all humanity has a bad heart. So there must be another way. And Jesus tells them, follow me, and I'll show you that way. Okay, so so Jesus makes it clear that the, the list of rules that the Pharisees have developed is not, in fact, the way of salvation. Our performance does not gain God's acceptance. So although the Pharisees are wrong. Maybe there's another way. The Sadducees have suggested one, so maybe that's it. You see, the the Sadducees were the ones who pursued knowledge for the sake of control. This was the the Jewish sect that held a lot of the political power of the day. They, too, were influential leaders, just like the Pharisees. But they came from this wealthy ruling class. Many of them were priests in the Jewish worship system. 
Similar to the Pharisees, this group too was deeply committed to the written law. But the place of conflict between these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, came from the fact that the Sadducees looked at the oral tradition of the Pharisees and says, we don't think that's right. We don't think that that has equal standing with the written law. At first glance, you look at that and you think, way to go, Sadducees. Way to draw the line. Put your foot down. But here was their motivation. Listen to this. They rejected the requirements imposed by the oral tradition because they wanted to preserve the freedom of individual interpretation. You see, they had this idea that I don't need you to tell me the right way. I can determine that one for myself. And as you might expect, their views became very liberal and very man-centered, to the point that they denied the mystical in, in support of the logical. <laughs> if they couldn't explain it, then, then they've determined that it must not be true. For example, the Sadducees denied the existence of angels. They couldn't explain it, <laughs> so it must not be true. They denied the resurrection because they couldn't explain it, so it must not be true. In fact, in their minds, there was no such thing as heaven and hell. It, it made no sense to them, so it must not be true. What they did believe was that the rewards for righteousness were found in this life only. And so as a result, they equated personal prosperity as a sign of divine blessing. The Sadducees maintain this very humanistic perspective. They fought hard to protect the the freedom of the will, which allowed them to, in a sense, choose their own path of salvation. It it was the belief that that you control your own destiny by the choices you make. Now, listen, they do look at the Scripture and they would say, hey, that's important because that helps you make good choices. But if the instruction of the Bible does not make good logical sense, then you have the freedom to to reinterpret it in a way that seems right to you. Whereas the the Pharisees followed this strict list of rules, the Sadducees protected the ability to to bend them in a way that made sense to the individual. Jesus encounters this group as well. Let's let's see what we can learn about their way from Jesus' response to a question that they ask him. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 23. says, On that day, some Sadducees, and they clarify here, who say there is no resurrection, as we've already talked about, came to Jesus and and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of all seven shall she be? For they've all had her. 
But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scripture or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice he brings that up because they don't believe in that either. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You see, the Sadducees began by creating this ridiculous scenario in order to expose what they believed to be a very foolish, illogical truth, the resurrection. They weren't interested about what happens at the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees, like many today, restricted their faith to that which they could explain. And in order to do so, you've got to reinterpret Scripture and in many cases eliminate the power of God altogether. But Jesus tells them, that which you are seeking can only be understood by that which you have given up. That which you've rejected. God has and always will reign over his people. Because he has promised his people that they will reign with him. The resurrection is real, he tells them. Angels, as he mentions, are real. Heaven and hell are real. But you're not listening to what God has so clearly spoken to you. He wants them to understand that as long as you are picking and choosing what you're willing to believe, you will never find the way of salvation. It's a false path. The one who takes the liberty to choose his own path will not find righteousness in Christ alone. Jesus confirms that the path of the Sadducees and the path of the Pharisees are both false paths. And even though the the paths have changed name, you and I need to know that these same things exist today and many are those who follow them. But the message of Jesus is also the same. We cannot find acceptance in our performance And God does not acknowledge those who want to be in control. And so there must be another way. And in fact, there is. This is the way that that leads to new life. It's what I call the way of the Savior. You see, the other two paths describe those who end up losing their life by trying to live their life on their own terms. The way of the Savior is much different because this way is going to take us to the end of ourselves. This path leads us to a place where we learn to depend on God to accomplish what we cannot do on our own. The false paths are are based on what we achieve. But the true way of salvation is based on what we receive. In order to to unpack this idea, let's let Jesus show us the way. Doesn't that make sense? He does it frequently in the New Testament, but let's look at one of those occasions. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. A beautiful passage of Scripture. I'm excited about looking at with you. 
As you turn there, let me just kind of give you a little background to the context. As I've already mentioned, Jesus has been telling his disciples, follow me and I'll show you the way. In the verses that precede the passage that we will look at in John chapter 14, he's explained to them that the time has come for him to be glorified and that he would only be with them a little while longer and that where he is going, they cannot come. Now, if I'm a disciple, I'm a little confused at this point, right? Because I'm supposed to be following Jesus because he is the way, but he just told me where I'm going, you cannot come. But he explains in John chapter 14, verse 1. Read along with me. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am going. There you may be also. Just let me stop here and tell you. You can't. Jesus told him, where I'm going, you cannot come. But he just said, don't worry. I'm going to come back for you, right? Let me continue, verse 4. And he says, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you were going. How, how do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. See, Jesus clarifies his statement by telling his disciples that that although you cannot get there on your own, you do know the way. And and don't worry, because I'm going to come back for you. I'll be gone for a while to prepare a place, but but I'm coming back. In one sense, I, I think Jesus is just helping them understand what he's already been telling them up to this point, almost like a a process of elimination. You've seen the false paths. You know that you can't get there by performance. You know that you can't get there by privilege. But you've been with, with me long enough to know that there's another way. I am that way. The truth and the life. The hope of your salvation begins and ends with me, Jesus says. We know that he tells us that, that he is the visible image of the invisible God. That he is the hope of our salvation. If, if we want to get to know of the, the way of salvation, Jesus says, you just get to know me. Because I am that way. All the principles and, and precepts recorded in the Bible, listen, they're important but only as they lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from faith in Christ, God's truth has no transforming power in our life. Did you hear that? Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, God's truth has no transforming power in our life. C.S. Lewis makes a similar comment. I, I Like what he says, he says, in Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible read in the right spirit with the guidance of good teachers always leads us to Christ. And so one of the questions that I think we need to ask and answer, whether it's what we learn from a sermon, 
what we learn from a, a Bible study or what we learn in a small group time or, or even in our own personal devotion. The, the question that we need to all ask and answer each time is how is what I'm learning impacting my relationship with Jesus Christ? How is it drawing me closer into fellowship with my Savior? It's an important question because I believe it that keeps us from traveling down one of those false paths. Knowledge has no power apart from the experience of that power through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It does me no good to create a list of rules that thing, of things I, I think I should be doing to please Him if those things ultimately draw me away to learning to trust Him in ways that I do things that, that are possible only through strength in Him. Remember that question. How is what I'm learning impacting my relationship with Jesus Christ? What I know about Him. What I understand about His will for my life in a way that glorifies Him. Now, let's pick up the conversation in John chapter 14, verse 8. So Jesus had just said this, and and then Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding me does his works. Believe me that, that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name. I will do it. See, Philip has been walking with Jesus, but he wanted to know if there was something more. Was this the path that would lead him to a knowledge and understanding of a relationship with God? Jesus responds by saying, in order for you to know God, you must believe that I am God. Because when you know me, you know the Father. And then Jesus says something that, at least for me, is, is very curious. He says, essentially, when you put your faith in me, that is what introduces you to the power of God. To the point that the works that you've seen in me, you'll be able to do also. And not only that, when I finish my mission on earth and, and I then abide in you, Not only will you be able to do the things you've seen me do, you will be able to do greater things. Greater things. Now, I read that and that stretches my brain a little bit. Does that not stretch your brain a little bit? Greater things than what Jesus has already done? How is that possible? Well, some have looked at that and explained it by suggesting, which I believe is a true statement, that that the greater work he is referring to is the magnitude of the impact through multiple people who trust in him. In other words, Jesus was only one person who could be at one place at one time. 
But when the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what he's called us to do, God's collective testimony becomes exponential in the lives of his people. And I think that's true. But I also believe there's another perspective that I would like to share with you and ask you to consider as well. Let me illustrate it to you with an example. The Olympics are coming up, and let's say that Usain Bolt runs another one of his amazing 100-meter dash world records, right? Amazing runner. Or if you're a swimmer, let's just say we see another gold medal performance from, from Michael Phelps, right? But then let's say you line up, you or I, we line up in the blocks with, with Usain Bolt or we get up there with Michael Phelps and let's say you and I jump in the water or you and I head down that track and we actually match their performance. <laughs> Pretty amazing, huh? Can you imagine running as fast as Usain Bolt? Or, or swimming like Michael Phelps. I mean, when you look at these people, when you see Usain Bolt, everything about him says he's fast, right? When you look at Michael Phelps and you see him swim, you think, that boy's fast, right? But if this body <laughs> lines up and matches the amazing performance that they do, let me ask you a question. What's more amazing, what they did or what you did? what you did it's what you or i did I, I believe in a similar way that's the greater works that jesus speaks of jesus did some amazing things jesus is god but what is even more amazing is when god's power is seen in the lives of ordinary people like me and you that's a greater work just like if I were to swim like Michael Phelps, you should look at that and say, that's not normal. <laughs> right? That would be a true statement. But listen to me. In a very similar way, when the power of God is at work in the lives of ordinary people like you and I, the world needs to look at us and say, that's not normal. That's not normal. When you remain committed to restoring your marriage, when your spouse has been unfaithful, that's not normal. When you can forgive the criminal who's taken the life of your child, that's not normal. When you choose to save yourself for that one person that you would commit yourself to in a covenant of marriage relationship in our world today, that's not normal. But these are the greater things that God does as evidence in the lives of God's people. When we believe in him and that faith introduces us to that power through the work of his Holy Spirit. You see, God's divine power in our ordinary lives is, is at least one aspect of those greater things that he has in mind. Jesus will make this point clear. Let's look at that together. Verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Believe I live and you shall live also. In that day, you shall know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus explains in this part of the dialogue that that our actions reflect what our heart has come to believe. In other words, our obedience is an evidence of our faith. Now, unfortunately, even in the church today, when I use that word obedience, we flinch. It's like a bad word that you hear. It often brings a a negative connotation that you and I might describe as doing the thing that I feel obligated to do, but I really don't want to do in the first place. (laughs) See, that's drudgery. That's, at least from a biblical perspective, that's not obedience. That may be an accurate definition if you're on one of the wrong paths, but it is not what Jesus has in mind. He he has a much more liberating perspective. Let, Let me explain. Let's go back to that illustration that I gave you earlier about Usain Bolt or or Michael Phelps. Let's just say, again, that you or I were able to line up and match one of their amazing performances. And if that happens, think about this. If you do that and you cross the line and see what you've accomplished, do you say to yourself as you hang your head low, gosh, I hope I never have to do that again. That was boring. Do you do that? No. No. In fact, I would be amazed. This is awesome. I want to do that again. I'm lining up to do that again. Right? And so would you. For that reason, obedience should be equally as exhilarating as swimming like Michael Phelps because they are equally as miraculous without the experience of God's power We cannot do them on our own. In fact, I think this may be the idea behind Jesus' statement when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I'm going to confess to you that for most of my life, I read this as a conditional clause, dependent upon my spiritual discipline to do the right thing. As a result, I convinced myself that, that it's up to me to give my best effort to to obey God so that I can prove my love for Him by how effectively I follow His commandments. But that's the wrong path. What Jesus is describing is is much more liberating. The the difference is subtle. I admit that. But, But listen closely. When I come to know Jesus and I believe in His promises, the power of the Holy Spirit indwells me. And by faith, that indwelling spirit transforms my life and begins to to change my heart so that I have the power to walk according to his word in ways that were not possible before I put my faith and trust in him. And not only would you see a change in behavior, you would also see a change in the motivation as well. 
My obedience is no longer about earning God's favor. It becomes a response to God's love. In that sense, and this is, I think, a very important thing to to consider. If that's the case, and I believe it is, then obedience is an act of worship. Obedience is an act of worship. My spiritual growth is experienced when I put to death my prideful arrogance that says that that I can do these things apart from Him. And I grow in the humility of what He makes possible through my dependence upon Him. You see the difference? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because I think He understands and wants us to understand that obedience is an inevitable outcome of an abiding relationship with Him. The Spirit of truth which the world cannot receive, abides with you and will be in you. That's the liberating part of the message. It's that God does not require us to fulfill his commands in our own strength. He actually equips us with that which we need to follow and walk according to his will and the strength of the Holy Spirit, a gift from him. That's a liberating promise from God. And so for you and I, the biggest battle that we have in the Christian life is is learning to live according to that promise and not in our own fleshly strength to do things on our own. And there is no doubt this is a battle, right? It's a battle for you and it's a battle for me. So I think it's good to ask ourselves every once in a while, Where are we restless and anxious in our life? Just think about that. Where are you restless and anxious in your life? What are those places where you're telling yourself, I can't do this? Maybe those are the places where God wants to do through you, through that amazing power of the Holy Spirit, things that you cannot possibly do for yourself. Maybe he's inviting you to come to the end of yourself and trust in him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Seek to know him more so that you can learn to trust him more. And when you find him faithful, listen to me. Let yourself fall in love so that your obedience to him is just a natural act of worship in response to what he is doing in you. Isn't that beautiful? That's what the scripture describes. As we finish up, let let me just remind you. Keep going back to that question, if you would. How is what I'm learning? How, How is what I'm growing in the knowledge? How is this deepening, impacting my relationship with Jesus Christ? Grow in that relationship by following the way of the Savior. Walk in steps of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let God do in you what you cannot do for yourself, including including the desire and the ability to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Our faithfulness is God's miraculous work 
in the lives of those who trust him. This is who we are. That's why scripture tells us that we boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. Because if you see things happening in my life that honor him, it's because of his power in me, not me. Abide in the spirit of truth. And that's what will transform your life to the praise of his glory. That such an important characteristic of who we are as God's people. And I pray for you and I that that describes who we are, right? Let's pray together. God, we want to be those people. Uh, boy, it's so easy to get off track and find ourselves in one of these other paths where we seek to do things in order to gain your approval. Or in some ways to believe that if we do the right thing, then prosperity is the sign of your divine approval. Forgive us, Father, when we find ourselves on one of those paths and redirect us by your Holy Spirit, by the truth of your word, to follow the way of the Savior. May we always come back to understanding that anything that we know and learn that it's of value and from you will always lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we walk in that faith, may we take steps of faith so that we get to the end of ourselves and we begin to experience the truth of what you do in us that we cannot do for ourselves. And when that happens, Father, and we begin to, to take steps of faith, walking in obedience according to your will, in a way that gives praise and glory to you, may we boast in the Lord. May we boast in you because we understand that that is evidence of your power at work in us, doing things that we cannot do apart from you. The right heart, the right motivation, the sacrifice of praise. And, and may as we look at our lives and see your work within us, transforming us into your image, may we worship you. May we adore you. May we love you because of what you have done in us. These are the greater things. Praise you, Father, for the greater things. Just like you promised, I see them. I see them in the lives of your people. May we glorify you because of that. We pray this in your name. Amen.